Psalm 19, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be unto God. You may be seated. So this should come as no surprise, but the Bible is the best-selling book of all time. And I find it fascinating that, how many of you have heard the, of the Guinness Book of World Records before? I used to collect those in middle school and high school every year. Nice, thick, hardcover book. And every time I went to the library, I always went straight to those on school field trips, getting good education, right, reading about the world records in the world. But I find it fascinating that even a secular organization like that, they even acknowledged that the Bible is the best-selling nonfiction book of all time. I find it fascinating they dubbed the Bible as nonfiction. And estimates are around it's sold of upwards of 5 billion copies, which is pretty astounding. The Bible is also a massive book. I mentioned this before, but if you were to print out the Bible on normal pieces of paper that you would typically find in a hard or soft cover or hardback book, the Bible would be about this long or this wide, this thick, about the length of the series of the Harry Potter books. Um, the Bible, so it's massive, very long. It was written by about 40 authors across three different continents in three different languages spanning about a thousand years. The Bible has no shortage of literary genres, for the Bible includes history, prophecy, letters, poetry, parables, proverbs, architectural blueprints, apocalypses, gospels, laws, sermons, formal covenant treaties, and travel narratives, just to name a few of what's contained in the Bible. As one author put it, this book that we're opening, hopefully you have in your hands, this book has been translated, forbidden, feared, argued over, abused, died for, and above all, it has been treasured. And also, in 1839, our founders in the Hillsborough Constitution and Covenant, when our founders listed the doctrinal beliefs that they wanted to rally around and hold to as a church, the very first thing they put was this. First, we believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the revealed word or will of God and the only rule of faith and practice. So church, as you and I, as we continue our trek through the Baptist faith and message, today we're looking at the doctrine of bibliology. If you've ever heard of that term, bibliology, it's simply the doctrine of the Bible, the study, the teaching of the Bible itself. And throughout all the things that we're going to cover today, which it's going to be informative, part apologetic, hopefully encouraging to your soul as well. But this is the one thing I want you to remember, and it comes from our text in Psalm 19. The Word of God is perfect, and it refreshes the soul. The Word of God is perfect, and it refreshes the soul. I want to make sure you got that, so church, if you'll repeat it with me, all right? The Word of God is perfect, and it refreshes the soul. Very good. So that you and I might better see this perfection, five angles we're going to look at today about the Bible. Number one, the source of the Bible. Number two, the scope of the Bible. 
Number three, the inerrancy of the Bible. Number four, the superiority of the Bible. And then finally, the purpose of the Bible. Number one, the source. Where did we get it from? And I'm not talking about the history yet. I'll address that in just a moment. But who wrote the Bible? Who's the author? God. Okay. Well, how did we get the Bible? So God is the author, right? But how did we actually get it? Who are the instruments that God used? Let me get some more. Make it easier for you. People. Mankind. So God wrote the Bible. Okay, it's a basic point. Not too hard to grasp. But let's look at Scripture and and pick it apart a little bit. 2 Timothy 3.16-17. I'm going to be referring to this passage quite often in this sermon. 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is from the mouth of God. And think about... Um, Luke chapter 6, verse 45. What did Jesus say there? The mouth what the heart is full of. So all Scripture is God-breathed. It's from the mouth of God. God speaks what his heart is full of. So if you will, the Word of God comes from the mouth of the Lord. God is the source. But as we know, and as we just said, God gave us the Bible through the hands of men. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 to 21 is quite clear on this note. Listen to 2 Peter. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. In other words, human beings, men, they did not just sit at the desk and think about, what is some truth I can write down? They did not come about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. It gets more clear. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the way I think about it, let me see if I got one on me. No, I don't. Not a, oh no, I was looking for a pen. But my point is, oh, we got a pen. There we go, Jonathan. This is a fancy pen too. All right, so the way to think about it is, if I write a letter, let me write in some big letters here so you can see if I write a letter right here, can you all read that? Hello? This is the beauty of my handwriting, right? This is what it looks like on small print, too. Um, if I write this, it's my mind, it's my heart, it's my thoughts, it's my words that I put down on paper. Yet, at the exact same time, it came through the instrument of this pen. And the pen is unique, right? It has a unique build. And depending upon how... Um, deep you go into the pen world, uh, the, the tip of a pen is called a nib. So every nib has different stroke, right? Some are fine, some are medium, some are large strokes, different colored ink, right? You've got red, blue, black, uh, green, if you're you know, that crazy. Different kind of unique aspects to every single pen. Has unique characteristics to it. So when God, if you will, wrote the Bible, he used men as the pen, That should be easy to remember. He used men as the pen. And every man that he used, whether it be Daniel or David or John or James, every single human being had their own unique characteristics to them. Their own unique personalities came through the writings. That's why there's such a variety, even in the book of Psalms, as as David, Asaph, Ethan, and others, and Moses, they each wrote some Psalms. 
right? Every psalm is uniquely voiced to reflect the personality of the one who wrote it. That's part of the beauty, the literary beauty of God's word. Thank you. And this is, you have to think about it also. This is a general truth of how God worked. How does God accomplish his work in the world? I would say primarily, I, I think I could use the word primarily, primarily through people. I've heard of numerous testimonies. Um, growing up in a pastor's home, we interacted with a lot of different pastors and ministers and whatnot. And it seems like years ago, so many I talked to, they're always like, well, we were just scraping by. Like we barely had anything in the bank account. It just seems like an ubiquitous testimony that the Lord is faithful, but there's so many testimonies I've heard of ministers who could not pay their next mortgage payment the next month. And then the very day where they needed a payment, what happened? There was a check in the mail for the exact amount, right? If you don't believe in miracles, all right, I've heard too many testimonies of this kind of thing happening. The precise amount in the mail. But, so what's my point? That check didn't come out of nowhere. Right? Somebody wrote it. God works through men, and that's the same thing with God's Word, the Bible. We have the Bible through the sovereign hand of God working through men. For example, Acts chapter 4, verse 25, it tells us, God spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Poor bubs. Acts 4.25, let me read it again. God spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And also Numbers 26, verse 13. These are the commands and regulations the Lord gave through Moses to the Israelites. Okay? God wrote the Bible through men. That's the first point. That's the source of the Bible. Number two, the scope of the Bible. This one addresses a little more of the history of how we got it. The scope of the Bible. Stated differently, the 66 books that we have in the Bible, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. The 66 books or 66 letters that we have are what's known as the canon of Scripture. Have you ever heard that term before, referring to the Bible? It's called the canon of Scripture. If you're like, what does that mean, canon? Well, canon refers to a ruler or a standard. So basically, does every book, does every letter measure up to a certain standard? Does it meet a certain criteria of authenticity of being from God Almighty? And it's important to ask this question. Why do we have 66 books? Why not 67? Why not 65? How did this list that we have, this compilation, how did we get this? How did this come about? Because I hope you know the Bible did not just fall out of the sky as a bound book, with 66 books as we have it today. Now the, the formation of the Bible is a very fascinating study with very rich history. So it's important to ask, how did we get the Bible as we know it today? Here's a simple answer. Right? This is a very legitimate question for a Christian and especially non-Christians to ask. Here's a simple answer. I'm going to try to unpack it for you. The Christian church received and recognized the 66 books we have as being God-breathed. Again, I'm being very precise in my language, okay? The Christian church received and recognized the 66 books we have as being from God Almighty. 
Very specific language. Let me try to explain. Contrary to popular belief, the narrative in the secular world, and even among some Christians, is that we got the Bible from different councils sitting around a table thinking, you know what, I like the Gospel of Luke, but I don't like the Gospel of Thomas. So let's chuck that one and let's just stick with the Gospel of Luke. That is not at all how the Bible is formed. That's a very simplistic, um, lacks nuance as to how the Bible came about. The church received and recognized what was canon, what was true, what was truly from God. To help illustrate this point, <clears throat> who likes money in here? Somebody be honest. Okay, you sir in the back. I'm coming back to you, all right? I don't know if I've met you before. Jimmy D, Mr. Tommy. All right. All of you, if you can see me back here, I've got two pieces of paper. Both of them. What do you think? What's some observations about it? One of them's fake. Which one? This one? Okay. This one is fake. This one is real. All right. You'd be confident in that? Okay. It's one of the first ones. You ever fake, felt fake money before? I'm not talking about Monopoly money. Somebody else. Feel it. You can feel that out, Leo and Anna. Okay. All right. Real fake. Now, I will say, let the record show, I did feel quite guilty printing this out. All right. Um, just let the record show. Jimmy D. Temple will never in any way try to use this as real money, as legal tender. All right? Why do I bring this up and mention this? Do I, as an individual, as a citizen of the United States, do I have the authority to declare or determine what is real and what is not? And I'm trying to be precise with my language. I don't. I don't have the authority to say, this is money. I don't have the authority to say that, to declare that, to make it happen. I can discern, correct, and to use the language I was using earlier, the only thing I can do is recognize what's real. And you all know what the real marks of money are, what real money is, right? You know the particular feel of it. You know, maybe you know the smell of it. I don't know if you've ever done that before. You know that real money has a watermark when you hold it up to the light. You know real money has the microprint around it. And if you've got Frankie, uh, you've got that blue holographic line in the middle. Right? That's pretty, pretty intriguing. So the only thing we can do as U.S. citizens and as consumers is recognize what is legitimate. Recognize what is true. The same way, when it comes to the 66 letters of the Bible, the 66 letters of Scripture, the only thing that Christians and the church as a whole can do is recognize and receive what is legitimate. The church has no authority to declare, this is God's word, this is not. The church can only receive and recognize what is truly from God. Now, a legitimate question. Are, all right, I got that, Jimmy D. What are some of the criteria they looked for? What are some of the marks of authenticity that the churches looked for? I'm glad you asked, and I'm glad you care. Three marks I'll mention. 
Number one, apostolicity. Apostolicity. What do I mean by that? Well, that is, did these writings, in Testament, for the sake of time, right? Old Testament's a little bit more nuanced, a little more dimensions to it. Let me just focus on the New Testament for a moment. Because if the New Testament is true, we can be confident the Old as well. So for the New Testament, apostolicity. By that I mean, was this letter written during the apostolic age? Was it compiled and written, composed during the first century? Right? If it came during the third century, the fourth century, so on and so forth, immediately discounted, immediately discredited. Number two, Catholicity. Catholicity. Now, I'm not referring to the Roman Catholic Church. Catholicity simply means universal. So in other words, we're the church. For example, if there, let's just say there were 250 congregations. If one of the congregations said, you know what, I like this book, um, the letter of Barnabas. We like this book. But the 249 other churches said, nah, we don't buy that one. Well, it was immediately discredited. It had to have universal recognition amongst all the churches. If only 20 churches agreed, or 50, even half, even majority, it had to be universally agreed upon that this was recognized that it was from God. Finally, number three, orthodoxy. Lastly, a letter's merit, a letter's authenticity was seen and determined by, or discerned by rather, is it faithful to the teachings of Jesus? Is it faithful to the teachings of Jesus? And if you were to use these three criteria in your own study time, and if you, I mean, I don't really think there's a whole lot of point in doing it, but if you are truly intrigued and want to go down that road of some of the other letters and books out there, you'll find that those other letters contradict at least one of them, if not all three, usually all three of those criteria. And you can be confident, and this is what I say, you can be confident that the 27 letters that we have in the New Testament are God's word, that they are from the mouth of God, and the other disputed books, they don't even come close to matching the content, the unity um, coming from the first century. They don't even come close to that. And you may know or have heard of the Apocrypha before in the Catholic context. The Apocrypha, there's several other books that Catholics have in their Bible in the Old Testament. The only thing I'll say, I don't want to, this is a huge apologetic issue, again, talking about the defense of the face. The only thing I'll say is this. The New Testament letters, they never quote from the Apocrypha. They quote from every other book of the Bible with the exception of, I believe, Esther. Could be wrong on that one. But the New Testament never quotes from the Apocrypha. Just something to keep in mind. And I encourage you, you can be confident today. If you want to talk about this more, you want some books and resources to figure out this study of how we got this, I'd be glad to recommend some. But you can be confident the 66 books we have are from the Lord. They are God-breathed. Number three, inerrancy. The inerrancy of the word. This is from Psalm 19. And of all the Psalms, 150 chapters, Psalm 19 is easily in my top five. Love this Psalm. And it's been said that there is no more succinct summation of the power and precision of God's written word anywhere in the Bible. Referring to Psalm 19. And look at verses 7 to 10 if you're there. If not, follow along. 
What is God's word described as? It says God's word is perfect. It's trustworthy. It's right. It's radiant. It's pure. It's firm. And what does God's word do in addition to that? That's what it is, but what does it do to you and I? Well, it refreshes the soul, makes wise the simple, gives joy to the heart, gives light to the eyes, it endures forever, and all of God's words, God's laws, God's truth, all of it is righteous. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, every word of God is flawless. Psalm 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Now, this psalm, Psalm 19, these few verses, you can summarize all of that truth into one word, inerrancy. The inerrancy of the Bible, the inerrancy of the word. And what does that mean? That's one of those Christian church terms. What does that mean? It means the Bible contains no historical blunders, no scientific errors, no factual inaccuracies, and no fallacies of any kind. It is perfect. It's flawless. It is free from fault or error. In church, you have to listen. This is extremely important for you and I to be clear about and for you and I to stand. There can be some wiggle room, some disagreement. I would say baptism was one of them. But this is one of those that is we cannot change. We cannot differ on. We, I will plant my flag. Why is that? Because the inerrancy of Scripture, in part, the inerrancy of Scripture is being assaulted in today's world. The perfection of God's Word. What do I mean by that? Practically speaking, how many of you have heard this thought or this sentiment? What the Bible says about injustice and about helping those in poverty and about peacefully forgiving others, that's good. But what the, when the Bible starts talking about my sex life and my sexual, sexual morality or immorality, well, it's wrong. It's not quite right. It's outdated. It's repressive. It's regressive. How many of you have ever heard that sentiment before? Or another way to say it, I know the Bible is true, but fill in the blank. That undermines the perfection, the goodness, the truthfulness of God's word. So church, I'm very clear. All of scripture from cover to cover is perfect. And we must stand upon the truth of his word. Number four, superiority of the word. What do I mean by that? Other one's false. Common ways you could answer that. Well, the Bible is historically accurate. It contains hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. It's internally consistent and doesn't contradict itself. Great one, it's true, but <clears throat> I've asked some people this before, some Christians. How do you know the Bible is true? 
Well, because the Bible says it's true. It's like, yeah, but that's, I mean, any other book can say it's true and, and authority. That doesn't prove it. But it does claim to be the truth, right? Mind you. Now, regarding all of those specifics, there's lots of different rabbit holes you can chase with all of them. That is a very big question. How do you know the Bible is true? Is the truth. I like the approach Tim Keller uses. How do I know the Bible is true? Focus on the resurrection of Jesus. Focus on the resurrection of Jesus. So many people will try to find rabbits and rabbit trails, trying to pick apart, especially some Old Testament uh, narratives and whatnot. How can you and whatnot? That's true. That's just absurd. Okay, let it, you can hold that for a second. Look at the resurrection of Jesus. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? If he did, if Jesus is who he says he is, that means everything changes. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus truly rose from the dead, how did Jesus view the Old Testament? As the authority, as coming from God himself, as being the truth. So if if Jesus did not rise from the dead, if that was faked, if that's a lie, if that's a historical inaccuracy, well then who cares about the Old Testament? But if and since, right, since Jesus rose from the dead, that is strong, strong, undisputable evidence that all of God's Word, Genesis to Revelation, is the full, complete truth of God Almighty. And today's not Easter, right? It's not the Easter season per se. I can talk to you and give you some evidences and strong historically reliable evidence of why Jesus rose from the dead. That's another sermon for another time. But that's what I would focus on. How do you know the Bible's true? What's the answer, church? What, what's, what, what's for where you should point for this? Did Jesus rise from the dead? Begin there. And then you can address some other Jonah, Noah, so on and so forth. Number five, num- and lastly, the purpose of God's word. Why do we have the Bible? Titus chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 gives us a little hint. The Apostle Paul is writing to Titus and to the churches where Titus is serving as a pastor, as a leader. Paul said, I'm writing this letter to you to further the faith of God's elect, to deepen the faith, to strengthen the faith of God's people, and to deepen their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Why do you and I have the Bible in front of us? Why do we open it week after week? Why do we want to know God's word, as our mission statement talks about? Well, so that our faith might be strengthened. And also, frankly, so that we might have more knowledge. It's good to know the truth. It's good to cognitively and mentally know the truth. But as you see in that verse, knowledge of the truth that what? leads to godliness. God does not want us to just have big heads, but to have full hearts to live out the truth. Now, is that the entire picture, though? Right? If you end there, you could think, you know what, God...
lifting up my speech. That's not the sole reason. That's part of it. God's word guides us in the right way we should live. But God gave us this book also so that we might know him. 2 Timothy three fifteen to 17 Again, that wonderful passage I highly encourage you to memorize if you don't know it yet. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. Because it helps us to know Christ. It's the only way verses, know the truth of the text, but more so, we want to know the living word, Jesus Christ. That's why we spend time in this book, to know God, to know him. God gave us the written word so that we know the living word. He gave us the Bible so that we might believe in the Christ. He gave us the scriptures so that we might be saved from our sin. So church, in conclusion, what's the main thing I want you to remember today? The Word of God is what? The Word of God is perfect. And what does it do for you? It refreshes the soul. Last thing we'll do, conclusion. Listen, if you want to go to the next slide, and one thing I'd like to do is read what's on text in the Baptist Faith and Message, to read it collectively. Again, just what is the Bible? What's the point of it? Why do we have it? What's the nature of it? So if you will, I'll read this out loud with me, and then we'll close and prayer in the doxology. The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all Scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All Scripture is a testimony to Christ, who is himself the focus of divine revelation. Amen. Our Father, may we go out now in peace. May we go out now with confidence. May we go out now with love in our hearts. A love for you, a love for your word, and a love for people. May this love begin in our families. May it extend to our friends, our neighbors, and our co-workers. Jesus, please cleanse us. Help us to be a church that stands upon the beautiful truth of your word. We need you, Holy Spirit. Please help us. In your name we pray. Amen.